0: Hello, I'm Huron Zani, and welcome to Tales of Baroque. Each episode you'll join me and my esteemed guests on another fabulous dive into the Baroque world, its characters, composers, politics, popes, kings and queens. The Australian Brandenburg Orchestra acknowledges the many traditional custodians of the lands on which we meet and perform. We pay our respects to elders past, present and to our shared future. Nowadays, the name Bach is synonymous with one person, Johann Sebastian Bach. However, this Baroque genius was but one member of a family musical dynasty spanning seven generations. This episode, I'm joined by Dr. Alan Max to dive into a fabulous tale of the musical masterpieces from Western music's most prodigious family, the Bachs. So today we have a, a wonderful topic to discuss, and it's obviously the Bach family. And, and, and being a, a Baroque-focused podcast, Tales of Baroque, you know, how, how can we not want to delve into this particular uh, part of, of Baroque music history, and in fact, music history generally speaking? Um, thank you for joining me today, Alan.
1: It's a great pleasure to be here. Nice to, to see you again.
0: Yes, and uh, for today's uh, Tale of Baroque, our topic isn't about a particular snippet of the period or even a particular place, um, but rather a whole family, a musical dynasty, seven generations of creative genius, as it has often been uh, referred to. And, and I think that's that's not an unfair comment, really. I think it's quite appropriate. Don't you, Alan?
1: Yeah, uh, there's a a whole series of extraordinary musicians really, Um, but at the centre of them obviously one person who really stands out in our memory. (laughs)
0: <laughs> yes. Now, why is it, and I'm sure you'd agree, as you've said, that m- for many people, the name Bach is is universally synonymous with one particular Bach, Johann Sebastian Bach. So, why is he the figure that all of this, um, this uh, academic literature, but also popular music and everything revolves around?
1: Yeah, it's an interesting... Um, question, because uh, to some extent, it's uh, a story of kind of accidents of history that J.S. Bach has stood out so much in the history of Western music. In fact, at the Time, during his own lifetime, uh, he was not all that famous. He was well known as uh, a keyboard player, particularly an organist, and as uh, an organ technician, um, as a composer to some extent, though he was not really a fashionable composer ever at the time, and uh, he was actually eclipsed by at least a couple of his sons who were more famous than he was. Uh, his son Carl Philipp Emanuel Bach and also Johann Christian Bach, who settled in London were both internationally better known than Johann Sebastian was. But uh, part of the story is the way that uh, Sebastian Bach's music was revived in the 19th century by Mendelssohn who uh, got hold of the score of the St Matthew Passion and famously did the uh, what he thought to be the centenary performance of it in 1829 and that kicked off a whole kind of uh, revival of Bach's music and also music of the period uh, which had, uh, which in the early 19th century was simply old fashioned music. It had gone out of style and was not really known anymore. Uh, so that kicked off a whole Um, interest in Bach, and once um, some of the music started to get into circulation, and particularly when they did the first complete works edition of any composer's music, um, they did the 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 full set of volumes of every piece that was known to have been composed by Sebastian Bach. Uh, and that, of course, meant that it went into libraries and people could get access to copies of it and it was performed. Um, and so uh, that's part of the kind of practical reason why Bach became so prominent. Uh, but on the other hand, we now know, of course, much more of the music of the period and, uh, and of, uh, other centuries as well. And Sebastian Bach's music has remained very important and uh, well-known uh, across um, all sorts of cultures and times and uh, by different people. And that's a testament, I think, to the sheer quality of what he did. Mm. Uh, it's so interesting and multi-layered and complex uh, and yet beautiful at the same time. And those are all features that, uh, that I think we uh, still love today.
0: I mean, there's there's a lot that you've even just said there, uh, Alan, and it, it's true um, what you've been saying. I mean, wh- when I've um, uh, delved into W.F. Bach, for example, and his history ahead of last series where he was featured as one of the composers in the program for Mozart's clarinet, you know, there 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 are comparisons and direct comparisons uh, between Bach and his sons, and so you know he was a known figure, but he was not as popular as uh, especially Carl Philipp Emanuel Bach within the own within his own. Country, um, You know, Johann Christian being based in London, obviously, maybe one could argue that um, he was um, uh, appealing to a different market, but within Germany, he certainly wasn't the most popular composer or the most prolific uh, with your Telemans as well uh, in that part of the Europe.
1: Uh, yeah, that's right. Um, he was a working musician doing a, a fairly standard kind of job as a director of music for the churches and for the city of Leipzig or through the second half of his career, when we uh, tend to which we tend to know best. Before that, though, he had been a court musician, but only in relatively small and unimportant courts. He never got to be director of music for, you know, the king of Saxony or the, the king of Prussia or uh, any of those uh, kind of major Um, Courts. He never, you know, went to Vienna to the to the imperial court or anything like that. Um, It was relatively minor um, on the kind of periphery of the 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 many uh, small but very musical uh, courts of central Germany. And um, that seems to have been where he was reasonably comfortable uh, being a a working musician, doing the sorts of things that members of his family had done for some generations. Uh, he just did it extraordinarily well
0: mm. Now you mentioned Mendelssohn there And uh, and uh, in fact Mendelssohn's story goes back uh, Slightly further to A, a fantastic uh, figure in music history That's relatively unknown to You know, most audiences these days In Sarah Levy, who was his great aunt I, I believe um, Who uh, was a collector of fine music And actually a patron of W.F. Of Bach, specifically in, in Berlin Now her collecting habits Included um, a wonderful collection of music by the Bach family, not just W. F. Bach, who she was obviously patronising, but um, but J. S. Bach's music as well. And is it thanks to her, namely, that the the whole revival of J. S. Bach's music through Mendelssohn, but also the the greater awareness of the family as a as a sort of a musical dynasty um, uh, came out of came out of the nineteenth century.
1: That's probably a fair comment because it was she who actually gave. Um the young Felix Mendelssohn, uh, the copy of the St. Matthew Passion, which uh, set him off on his kind of Bach journey, uh, it was a present, and um, it was to his credit that he then got stuck into that and uh, and saw the potential for actually performing this what was then considered old and unfashionable music um, in uh, in a modern performance. But yes, you're right. I think it was it probably was Sarah Levy who who had a an enormous influence on that through her collecting habits and through her her kind of wide. Um, cultural interests, I guess we could say, uh, and particularly her interest in music. So, um, yes, a very musical family and uh, a very eminent uh, family, also including um, his, I think, uncle, a philosopher and uh, and so on. So, mm. um, yes, a really interesting story of how that that revival took place. One of the interesting things about it, though, was that uh, by the time in the early 19th century they came to perform this music, it was already considered to be extremely difficult music, Uh, so difficult that um, they had to spend months rehearsing the the St. Matthew Passion training up uh, an amateur choir to sing it. And it's still considered very difficult and challenging music for uh, choral societies to do. But of course, it wasn't written for a choral society. It was written for um, what was, uh, I guess we would say, as a semi-professional church choir, uh, which sang this kind of music week in and week out under Bach's direction. Uh, so it shows also something about the way that the um, the music culture had changed, um, and also I guess the the style of performing because when Bach wrote pieces like that, they were for church performance as part of a church service, whereas by the time Mendelssohn comes. To, to do it a century later, uh, it's concert music, it's not done in a church service, but uh, for a concert audience. And so that kind of is emblematic of the way that the reception of this music changed over time. Uh, it goes from being kind of functional music for a particular use in a particular situation to being concert music of, in the way that we it almost always today.
0: Mm, which is, I mean, that's a fascinating topic unto itself. But um, but I want to bring us back to uh, the, the point that you're making in terms of the diversity of music um, uh, as a whole, as, as a general thing. Because in this program, luckily, uh, we have in the Barks, uh, guest director and solo baroque violinist, Shunsuke Sato, introducing our audiences to other wonderful music that's not of the Baroque period, that's earlier music than the Baroque period too, um, including some music by J.S. Bach's great-uncle, and, uh, and a very interesting uh, musical figure, Heinrich Bach. Now, um, there has to be an origin story these days. It's so popular, this idea of you know, an origin story for all sorts of um, uh, tales. Uh, what's the origin story for the Bach family, and where does the, the musical um, uh, part of the family sort of start? Where, do, where does music come into this picture for the, for the Bach family, and what do we know?
1: Mm. Uh, James Bach himself actually drew up a family tree of uh, the musician Bachs um, with himself uh, towards the end of it, of course, and it was added to by his son, Carl uh, Philipp Emanuel. So it incorporated um, several generations of Bachs, going back to one, Bach, uh, who was uh, said to have been a baker who moved from Hungary to Germany because of religious persecution and uh, although he was not a professional musician he um, used to carry around a little sit with him a little plucked string instrument kind of like a Uh, a bit like a mandolin or a guitar, uh, which he apparently used to play when he was in the mill, uh, running the the machinery uh, to keep himself occupied while he watched to make sure that uh, that everything was working properly. Uh, And then one of his sons, Hans Bach, uh, seems to have been the first professional musician that we know of. Um, He showed an aptitude for music and uh, was apprenticed to the town Piper, which was one of the ways that you became a professional musician in those days. Uh, And then um, from from him and also from uh, his brother, probably uh, we get um, several lines of descent of Bach relatives, uh, many of whom were also musicians. Mm. Interesting that um, that in Johann Sebastian's family tree, which is a, a beautiful document in itself, it is actually drawn up in the shape of a tree uh, with branches and and leaves and all of that stuff. Um, and uh, there are other relatives who he seems to have known about but didn't actually incorporate into the family tree, perhaps because he wasn't sure exactly how he was related to them. Uh, so and an example of that is um, Johann Ludwig Bach, who we're going to hear on this program as well. Uh, so we go all the way back to Feitbach and then Hans Bach, and then uh, a couple of generations later, we get um, Johann Sebastian and uh, and his famous sons. Um, but along the way, um, Sebastian's father, Ambrosius Bach, was also a town musician, a director of, of town music. Um, he had uh, uncles and great uncles and so forth who were all uh, also notable professional musicians and who Sebastian was well aware of and, uh, and tried to find out about and uh, to collect some of their music. Mm.
0: And I can imagine that as um, obviously the, uh, the the cost of publishing or, or just creating manuscripts for um for, for personal uh, collection of this sort of music um, came down as as this sort of this sort of thing became a bit um, a bit more um, cost effective, uh, it would have become uh, easier for the family music to be passed from one generation to the to the, to the next. You know, Johann Sebastian obviously was responsible for ha- copying by hand a lot of music it was actually a part of his job as 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 well sometimes copying music from the italian greats and these sorts of things at the behest of a uh, of an employer but um but I, I can imagine that there's something in that that um that uh, obviously some of the music would have been collected by his forebears as well uh, and and that there's uh, traces of information that he would have been able to um uh, go along and work work through to find uh, other things out about his um his uh, his ancestors mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, it's important to remember that throughout this whole period, very little music was printed. Um, Music printing technology had been developed. in the uh, 16th century but uh, there was very very little that was actually printed and circulated through music shops and so forth until we get pretty much up to sebastian bach's generation um, there is a certain amount through the 17th century particularly of uh, uh, italian uh, music published in venice and also a growing publishing industry in the netherlands and and in northern france in particular uh, but you it was only worth getting music printed if you're going to be able to sell quite a lot of copies. And for the most part, most of the music that was produced was for immediate use in the particular place and the particular time when it was created. Uh, There was an expectation that most of the music that you would hear uh, would be new music, that it was newly composed for that particular court or that particular church. And so hence why uh, Sebastian Bach's job included composing uh, a new cantata every Sunday for Mm. year after year. Uh, and Telemann the same in his job in Hamburg and so forth. It just came with the territory that you were expected to produce new music all the time. Uh, and in that situation, there's not a lot of call for that music to be printed because when it, as soon as it's printed and disseminated somewhere else, it's already old music. Mm-hmm. Um, so mm-hmm. it would only be certain particular things that uh, you wanted to preserve, not so much in order to sell many copies of them and make your fortune, but rather because there was a reason to commemorate the occasion By printing a piece that had been performed at a special event, Um, maybe something to do with the royal court or uh, an important anniversary of a church or something like that, and so one of Bach's early cantatas was published in that kind of way, which was a big deal. It was really unusual, and the vast majority of his music, including the passions and um, the B minor mass, and all these pieces that we now consider to be among the the great works of music uh, were not printed at the time. Uh, So it was mostly a matter of simply copying them out. And people did copy music all the time. Um, As as you mentioned, um, J.S. Bach himself copied out lots of music, particularly in his youth um, when he was uh, learning um, both to play and to compose. One of the ways that you learnt to compose was just by imitating the examples of other composers. And what better way to get in, inside the, the mind of the composer who you're studying uh, than to copy out the music and mm. physically writing it down makes you think through, why does it work this way? Why does this note follow that one and not do something different? Why does this chord follow that one? Uh, and um, so that was very much part of the music culture at the time was the, the physical copying out of scores, uh, which could then be shared amongst colleagues and family members and and so on. So this is how collections were made and how Bach himself um, amassed uh, and the church uh, for which he worked in Leipzig, for example, had a substantial collection of music by his predecessors, which could also be called upon from time to time.
0: And especially, obviously, we've talked about fugues and fugal writing, counterpoint Uh, previously. Uh, I can imagine learning that sort of music is, uh, by by a way of copying, um, you know, examples of counterpoint, is the the best way to learn that sort of music and that was the tradition that Bach was essentially, you know, born into as it were.
1: Uh, Yeah, certainly that's part of it. Um, A big part of learning counterpoint as well was actually doing it at the keyboard. Uh, There were lots of exercises um, which were called in Italian partimento, uh, which in which you would be given a theme and then you had to work out how to make that theme uh, play out in multiple parts, um, playing the same melody but at different pitches and in different voices uh, and making them all weave together in such a way that it created a whole piece. Uh, and this could be done just from being given a few bars, uh, a few lines of uh, music to start with, just for one voice, just a melody line, and you had to work out how to elaborate that into a whole composition. And that kind of exercise really makes the brain <laughs> tick over and um, forces you to think through, how does this actually work? So mm-hmm. there were there were exercises that uh, were the, the kind of basic um, materials of learning to compose, uh, which were about how you fit voices together. And then you put it into practice at the keyboard. And that, of course, was something that Bach excelled at uh, above uh, even his expert contemporaries. Uh, his ability just to sit down and improvise a fugue was um, was well known and and he was very highly regarded for that. Uh, hence the the famous instance uh, which was reported in his obituary, where uh, he visited his son Emmanuel Bach at the court of um, King Frederick II of Prussia. And uh, when he uh, when Bach arrived, fresh off the coach, still in his travelling clothes, the king demanded that he come straight in and immediately sat him down at a keyboard instrument and said, OK, improvise me a fugue on this theme, which you've never seen before, which is extremely chromatic and complex and difficult. And, uh, and Bach did it. Um, but that was his reputation. You know, such was his reputation that, that the king knew that he could do it and wanted to, to see this kind of um, marvellous thing firsthand. Mm.
0: Now, we've also talked about, um, in, in terms of going away just for a minute from the, the musical side of the Bach family, we've talked about how trades are, are a part of, of this period of, of time. And, um, and I can imagine that most of the Bach family were musicians, but not all of them were musicians or destined to become professional musicians, as it were. Um, is that true?
1: Uh, Sure, that's uh, that's always going to be the case, I guess, that, you know, not everybody goes in a family goes into the same trade, but uh, it is useful probably to think of it as being a trade, which was kind of the family business. Uh, in the same way that if you were the son of a goldsmith, you were likely to be apprenticed as a goldsmith and to stay in that trade. If you were a baker or a plumber or whatever it was, uh, you tended to go into the family business. And the expectation was particularly that the eldest sons of each family would go into the father's trade unless there was some particular reason not to. And uh, so the Bach uh, children, both in Sebastian Bach's generation and certainly his son's generation, Um, They were were trained as musicians from earliest childhood and that is kind of necessary to be the kind of fully immersed member of a musical culture, I guess, in the way that they all were. Uh, they were playing keyboard instruments, composing, singing, um, playing the violin from uh, when they were quite small. And so it just seemed to be a normal part of family life, I'm sure. And in fact, we have um, a lovely account of how the various branches of the, the Bach family used to get together and have uh, kind of musical parties in which they would just improvise uh, comical songs and um, putting together. Uh, Singing different songs that were quite unrelated and making them, forcing them to harmonise with each other, and uh, just amusing themselves by doing these things, which to other people would have seemed like astonishingly virtuosic, you know, brilliant uh, examples of musicianship. But it was just for them; it was just fun because this is what they did. You know, it was their their life uh, occupation, and they obviously enjoyed what they did. And um, probably it was a little bit competitive as well. I can imagine that they, you know, you would get together with all the uh, the expert family members and show off a little bit of what you could do.
0: Yes, and uh, it, it certainly didn't. Uh, I suppose the buck in terms of the music education didn't stop with the male members of the family, but uh, but we do have um, records as well of the female members of the the family also receiving like uh, like for like sort of music education, uh, especially as younger. Um, younger uh, girls
1: Yeah, it's hard for us to know because um, Bach's uh, family tree only recorded the male members of the family and only those who he knew of who were musicians Uh, and so the ones who weren't musicians we don't know about and also the female members of the family we know much less about One thing to bear in mind is that there was hardly any opportunity for a woman to be a professional musician during this period Uh, the only ones really were opera singers and so Bach's second wife Anna Magdalena Bach or as her maiden name Anna Magdalena Wilke or Wilke um, was a court singer Um, and so she was a professional musician and uh, quite an expert one Uh, but otherwise it's hard for us to know so the the female members would also have been well trained musicians i'm sure but they had much less opportunity to uh to do public music making but i'm yeah. sure they did quite a bit in the domestic sphere and uh, no doubt they also married into other musical families and maintained the the kind of um Family tradition that way,
0: and as as such a numerous, uh, obviously uh, family, and and with so many different lines and um, influencing various parts of the German-speaking lands, as it, as it were. How did the family fit more as a, as a whole into the broader artistic landscape of the time? Were they well off? You know, were they were they mainly working for noble families, or or um, what sort of key relationships were they, and how did they fit into the broader artistic scene?
1: They were, I think we'd probably call them middle class. They were not especially well off, but they were certainly not poor people either for the most part. But uh, I guess the other side of that coin, though, is that um, although where they lived in central Germany in the early 18th century was quite prosperous and one of the uh, more stable areas of Europe, uh, nevertheless, your condition uh, as an individual person or as uh, a family depended very much on the particular circumstances at the time. And that included simply your state of health, you know, how uh, well could um, somebody continue to work? And if somebody, uh, if a member of the family died, particularly if the father who was the breadwinner died, then suddenly things could get quite dire and that in fact happened to Sebastian Bach himself. Um, His father died when he was only 10 and uh, he was left with a stepmother who had only been married to his father for a few months um, and who he hardly knew and she was left to look after uh, her own children from a previous marriage and uh, Ambrosius Bach's children, so Sebastian's father's children, uh, and with no visible means of support. So uh, it was, you know, suddenly from being relatively comfortably off as the son of the director of music for the town, uh, suddenly he was an orphan uh, with uh, really uh, quite a dire economic situation. And so he went to live with his older brother, who luckily was old enough to already be in a job and have some kind of. Uh, security. But uh, again, they didn't have much money. Um, he had to get a scholarship to to go to school, uh, to go away to board at a school far away in uh, Lunenburg up in the north and, and so on. So these kinds of um, uh, vicissitudes, I guess we could say, you know, meant that um, there was not a lot of security other than what was provided by these kinds of family networks. And so it meant that uh, when something did go wrong, you really had to reach out to the extended family, as uh, and as Bach himself did for other members of his family. When things went wrong, uh, he kind of reached out and looked after them as well. But I mean, um, mm-hmm. so so they were kind of reasonably comfortably off, but it did depend very much on where you worked, who your employer was, and uh, the just the things that could. Could go wrong in life,
0: and we see that story echoed actually after J.S. Bach's death with um, with Anna Magdalena and um, and her still young, uh, very young children at the time, uh, largely being supported by Carl Philipp Emanuel Bach. In fact, you know uh, uh, Wilhelm Friedemann uh, was not in a good financial position himself, as the eldest uh, um, son of, of J.S. Bach's first marriage. And, uh, and, and it was up to Carl Philippe Emmanuel as the, the most successful uh, member of that family. And also he clearly had a, a vested interest in, in his uh, stepmother and, and, you know, it was, was, took that uh, responsibility on. But if it hadn't have been for his success and his um, sta- standing, then I can imagine things would have even been uh, more dire. Although I, it's it, the, the community that surrounded and there, there are, um, uh, you know, there are accounts of um, uh, of this that um, that Anna um, Magdalena benefited from uh, from uh, quite a lot of community support following the death of Johann Sebastian, but nevertheless uh, died in the street, rather destitute um, as a as a very poor uh, poor lady. Still, uh, you know, it's incredible to think that, um, that how her life ended up, um, in spite of now how. Her husband, her late husband, um, and his um, his memories regarded.
1: Uh, Yeah, that's right, and it it just uh, reminds us that um, this kind of music that we love so much doesn't exist in a vacuum. You know, it came out of the particular circumstances of uh, people who were you know real people who lived real lives and had uh, um, particular challenges in the circumstances in which they lived and part of that of course at the time was the limitations on the ability of women and to uh, to earn income themselves even to own property and uh, so uh, women were very dependent on the um, support of their fathers their husbands uh, and sometimes their sons um, to uh, to support them when um, when they uh, when their husbands in particular Uh, passed away. And interesting in the case of Anna Magdalena because she had herself been a highly paid professional musician as a young woman, Um, but uh, the expectation was that she couldn't continue to do that once she was married and had a family and so forth. So uh, yeah, all of that made um, the situation challenging and difficult at times Uh, and so I guess I guess it's also a reminder of the achievements of the musicians of that time who managed to do so much uh, despite some of the difficulties that they faced in in day-to-day life.
0: So I think listeners would love to hear some of Heinrich Bach's music. I mean, uh, th- this is, of course, music of an earlier and very different style to what we're familiar with hearing uh, from J.S. Bach. Uh, perhaps you could tell us about this particular Sonata cinque or Sonata 5 in, in, F, in F major that is going to be the concert opener for the Bachs.
1: Yeah, uh, so this is, it is very much Baroque music, um, but it's Baroque music of the 17th century rather than the 18th century. So uh, for uh, listeners may find it a little bit more similar to music like maybe Corelli, though it's even a little bit earlier than that again. It's called a cinque in Italian, meaning in five parts. And that's because it has two violin, two viola parts and bass. I guess we're more used to hearing two violins, one viola and bass. That's the kind of typical four-part texture that we get later on. But a five-part texture was quite common in the 17th and even through into the early 18th centuries. Uh, And it just gives a, a kind of rich, warm sound with a lot of middle to the sound with the two viola parts. Um, and uh, and the piece is in a rather Italianate kind of style And uh, really a beautiful piece And uh, quite kind of lively and expressive too
0: Now this is featuring Musica Antica Köln Led by Reinhard Goebel On an album called Bach Bachianas It's, a, it's quite a, an incredible collection of five discs in fact uh, Released in 2012 <laughs> I'll leave that going on in the very bright and exuberant music, uh, Alan, going on in the background. Uh, Perhaps you could tell us something about the, the way repetition is being used here in this music.
1: Yes this kind of sonata is made up of a series of short sections each of which repeats and so that extends it out to being a longer piece but also gives us a chance to hear each idea a couple of times so that the first time we hear it and think oh that's interesting and new and then we hear it again and start to take in a little bit more of the different layers of of interest of what's going on in the music because it is fairly dense with uh, the multiple um parts and the the multiple inner parts as well. Uh, And so he uses repetition to to give us that chance to hear it again, but also uh, to provide contrasts so that we get one section which repeats, then a quite different kind of section with alternation of loud and soft, fast and slow and so forth, so that we get uh, these kind of contrasts. Um, It's a sonata, meaning simply a piece to listen to, to, or rather a piece to play, um, rather than a cantata a piece to sing Um, and so it's a relatively early example of instrumental music which is just for performance as uh, listening music as opposed to dance music or having some other kind of practical function like that
0: yes and you've preempted my my next question which was you know what sort of purpose would this this sort of music had i mean what would have been the setting for 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 a piece of music like this where would it have been performed
1: Yeah, a bit hard to know, um, but because as far as I know, with this particular piece, there's no uh, special indication of what it was used for. But this kind of music could be heard in church. Uh, There were plenty of occasions in church services where there was uh, aspects of ceremony going on and uh, perhaps during communion when there was music played uh, to kind of fill in the the spaces in the service, Um, but also for entertainment in uh, court settings. Um, so there would be chamber music for the royal family, that kind of thing, um, and, uh, and also sometimes in theatrical pieces there would be a, uh, a moment for for dance music or just for a, um, a piece that would serve, like this is a kind of, it, that might serve as a, a sort of overture to a piece or to a, a section of a, a work.
0: Now, moving on into the, the, the early uh, 18th century then, um, we we have this uh, very intriguing figure in L- Johann Ludwig uh, Bach, um, and I, I, I'm sure that um, that even though he uh, was missed out in Bach's um, genealogy that you were you were talking about um, earlier, Alan, um, he, uh, listeners may be actually familiar with with his music or may have come across this particular uh, this particular piece before. This suite in G major. What can you tell us about Johann Ludwig Bach and and um, and his musical output? <coughs>
1: Okay, we don't know a great deal about uh, Johann Ludwig Bach. He was uh, the same generation as Johann Sebastian, um, born uh, just eight years before um, Sebastian Bach. And so the music sounds much more familiar to us, I guess, in the sense that it's from that same period, the same generation essentially as Handel and Vivaldi and Telemann and so forth. Um, we don't have many pieces surviving that we know of by Ludwig Bach, um, and uh, so, but this one is a. A, a nice example of music in the French style, which was then fashionable. Uh, it starts with an overture, and that um, may sound a bit familiar to those who are familiar with Bach's orchestral suites, for example, uh, which start with a French overture, and then we have a series of movements in uh, French dance forms. Um, Ludwig Bach spent his whole career, as far as we know, at the court of Meiningen, which was actually not far away from where uh, Sebastian Bach worked for pretty much all of his life in central Germany in Thuringia, probably only about 50 kilometres uh, away from the um uh from arnstadt and uh the other places where bach worked early in his life uh, so it may well be that they knew each other personally um, but we're not entirely sure how they were related that that's also possible um, uh, but certainly he's of that same generation and uh writing in a style which was very fashionable at the time and 50 kilometers i mean it really
0: isn't far at all when we think about bach having traveled several hundreds of kilometers um, although that was as far as he did get but um, on foot to, uh, for example, the 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 anecdote about going to see Buxtehude uh, playing.
1: Uh, yeah, that's right. Though that, that was when he was much younger. Though I guess by the time he was uh, in uh, well established as a. Uh, a middle-aged professional. He certainly moved around a bit. He went to Dresden, for example, and uh, which was a similar distance away uh, and was quite well connected with other musicians around. Um, and he did uh, collect some of the music of Ludwig Bach as well. Um, so he, I guess he was, he was aware of his distant relative um, and uh, they they certainly certainly shared a similar kind of background and no doubt a similar kind of training and were working in the same kind of environment. So it's mm. not surprising that the the music um, sounds kind of familiar to us in that sense.
0: Well, let's have a listen to that overture that you've uh, you've mentioned, which opens the the suite in in G major, and um, and then uh, I'll ask you a few questions about about that, Alan. So sure. this, uh, this again is Musica Antica Köln from the same album. It's a, it's a brilliant album. I mean, if you're looking for a, a, an overview in music of the Bach family, this is certainly a great collection to go to. There certainly is something Lullian about about that sound. Very French, extremely different to the um, uh, to the sonata cinque that we heard previously.
1: Yeah, that's right. And it is the style which uh, had become known by this time across Western Europe as being the French style. Um, that very distinctive rhythm, palm, ba-dum, ba-dum. But ah, as soon as you heard that, you knew straight away this is French style music. Uh, And it had become popular. several uh, decades earlier in the music of Lully, as you say, at the French court under Louis XIV. And uh, after that, it um, became one of the, the really kind of standout genres of music, I suppose you could say, that was taken up by musicians, particularly across the German lands. And so we get dozens of overtures of this type by Telemann. Uh, Handel used French overtures of this type a lot. Even in his Italian operas, he sometimes set French overtures which was uh, a bit of a surprise to Italian audiences who didn't hear much of this kind of music, Um, but it had become very well established as a standard kind of uh, format in in France and in Germany.
0: Well, as we've said before, Handel was a very entrepreneurial man. Why limit yourself? You know, it's
1: (laughs) give the audiences something unexpected and surprise them. Yeah, that's right. And uh, uh, he uh, certainly was a master of this style. One of the things that it is interesting to note with the German composers writing music in this style is that it doesn't sound quite the same as the original French versions. And one reason is because uh, after that opening section with the distinctive dotted rhythms, uh, the second section of a French overture has some imitation in it. It's like a a little bit of a fugue. Well, in French composers, it's just a kind of a gesture in that direction. They just have a few bars of imitation and then it it, uh, uh, Um, leads on for a while and then winds up quite soon. But German composers like Bach and also Handel to some extent um, wrote a real fugue which went on (laughs) for quite a (laughs) long time and developed into a very substantial piece in a way that Ludi's original compositions uh, were never intended to do. Because they were simply a grand opening to which was the overture to an opera or to another piece, um, but it developed into something which then became a, a kind of substantial orchestral work, and uh, and these opening movements carried a lot of weight. I guess we could say in terms of being substantial, serious, complex compositions, particularly in the hands of these German composers.
0: Let's have a listen to that. I'll um, I'll put our overture back on and see if we can't find the right spot. Now, without mm. wanting to mention particular composers outside of the Bach family per se, for me, this sounds extremely Handelian. I mean, it's almost like it's, you know, a, a very different musical approach, really.
1: Yeah, it's very uh, melodious, isn't it? And in in fact, I I thought listening to it, you know, I haven't studied the piece closely, I must say, to, to kind of work out exactly how it's constructed, but um, it does sound uh, a little bit more French in that, <laughs> way in that it doesn't actually develop into uh, a kind of thoroughgoing fugue in the way that maybe uh, Sebastian Bach or, or Handel, for that matter, uh, might have done with it. Um, it's quite uh, kind of lyrical and um, has memorable tunes and uh, and those moments where the bass just uh, sits on a pedal note mm. while the um, the upper parts move uh, over the top of it, almost like one of those kind of pastoral. Uh, kind of effects where it's pretending to be bagpipes or something like that. Uh, So it's uh, quite a gentle lyrical sort of effect uh, compared to some of the uh, French overtures that we get, uh, say in in um, Sebastian Bach's uh, orchestral suites, for example.
0: Yes, and we'll we'll see one of those orchestral suites as an example uh, later in the program. Uh, but mm-hmm. before then, uh, talking about lyricism, um, I'll just play a little bit of the first air from this suite because it is it is uh, sublime music. And if if the listeners uh, our listeners haven't heard it before, I think it's well worth a listen. Mm-hmm. that just divine and, and light-hearted, uh, melodious music, Alan?
1: It is. It's beautiful. And uh, I think there's something in what you say about it sounding slightly Handelian, uh, in that... Um it's probably a little bit more kind of Italianate and lyrical uh, in the Gallant style, uh, more than Sebastian Bach often um, enjoyed to do. He uh, he seems to have really enjoyed his, his counterpoint, his complexity, uh, and although he could perfectly well write a, a beautiful melody, and often did, um, he uh, tended to to focus more on the kind of layering, the inter- interplay of the different voices, whereas this kind of music um, focuses a bit more on the melody and that uh, sheer beauty of sound. Uh, and it is very attractive music.
0: Now, let's go back to a, a topic that um, we haven't been able to touch on for a while, and it's it's to do with musical fragments and, and reconstruction of works. The idea that all of the music that survives up until this day is complete is obviously a furphy. There's a lot of music that survives only in um, fragments or, or a fragmented version, or um, as a, a a piece of music that was a an arrangement for different forces than the original actually was composed. Um, now I, I'm thinking specifically about a couple of works which we're going to see on on this program, but Alan, perhaps um, perhaps you could tell us about uh, why that is, or, or or a little bit about um, about things that have been lost and and the idea of reconstructing the past. <laughs>
1: Yeah, we see so much of our music today. We just, you know, we buy a CD or we can buy a a score in a shop and uh, and it presents a piece as the piece, which is just uh, in its kind of complete form. And I guess it invites us to imagine that every piece has uh, a perfect and final form uh, that it was written down by the composer at some particular time and we can make a nice edition of it. And that's just the piece. However, very Mm -hmm. often it's not the case. Um, often uh, it Kind of takes us back, I guess, to the question that we talked about before, about the way music was transmitted. Uh, because most of it was never printed, we have manuscript copies uh, which could easily get damaged. They could come apart. You can lose pages out of them. Uh, I, I spent a long time trying to reconstruct a, uh, a motet, for example, by um, Basque Contemporary Porpora, uh, for which a couple of pages were missing. The rest of the score is there and you think, wow, this is a fantastic piece. But the first page and the last page are missing because they were just the outside sheets of this this folder of of paper. And at some point they got detached. And luckily they turned up in it somewhere else in the same library. But uh, very often that's not the case. You know, you simply have the paper wears out and a page falls off and it gets lost and it will never be found again. So what do we do with that? Um, Sometimes it's possible to reconstruct what would have been on that page based on the uh, the evidence of the rest of the score uh sometimes um in the case of music by famous composers uh subsequent scholars set out to recompose it or to to add in the bits that were missing and we have some pieces like uh, like that um by mozart for example which he never completed he started out on something and just uh decided it was a bad idea and he would do something else and uh or it just didn't suit the circumstances so he stopped part way but it's wonderful music and uh why not Um, hear that in a completed version. And so we get that kind of thing also with uh, Sebastian Bach and other members of the family, where either a piece was uh, never uh, completed in a particular form or simply part of some of the pages have gone missing. And so we have a fragmentary score which can be reconstructed in some way, or we have a version of the piece which has come down to us in a different form, as you were alluding to before. very often composers, including Sebastian Bach, uh, rearrange their own music. And these days, uh, we kind of imagine that as being a little bit like cheating, as it seems like kind of um, self-plagiarism, somehow to reuse a piece that you've composed before and pass it off as a new piece. But that is a Uh, of course, an entirely modern idea. It doesn't uh, take into account the way the music industry and the music professionals worked in the 17th and 18th centuries. So for example, in the case of Sebastian Bach, He uh, is under this demand, this expectation of writing new music all the time. Uh, But after he had moved on from one job to another, there was music that he had composed, for example, in uh, Weimar or in Curtin early in his career. And that had been heard maybe once 20 years ago in another town for a completely separate audience, why would you not reuse that music and repurpose it for a different situation for uh, different performers uh, to be heard in a different environment? And so sometimes we get pieces with new words set to old music or uh, a piece arranged for different instruments from what it had originally been. And indeed, we have a wonderful example of that on this program.
0: Yes, indeed, Alan. We certainly do have a beautiful example of this with uh, Johann Sebastian Bach's Concerto in C minor for oboe and violin. This work, uh, which has been recorded by the Netherlands Bach Society, featuring both uh, Shunské Sato and Emma Black, who are going to be featured here in the Bachs um, for the Brandenburg, uh, is a wonderful piece of music and their, their recording is, is simply stunning, which you can obviously find on, on, on YouTube. Uh, what would you like to tell us about this particular concerto and what was the form uh, and why is it called a reconstructed concerto in the first place?
1: Yeah. Uh, Reconstructed because we don't know for certain, but it appears that it was originally written for violin and oboe. But the form in which it's come down to us is in copies made in the mid 18th century, which were in the form of a concerto for two harpsichords. And what appears to have happened is that uh, Sebastian Bach made an arrangement of this piece to play at his public concerts in Leipzig in the 1730s, probably. Uh, And uh, he simply would have reused a piece that he composed earlier, but arranged it for different instruments. Now, the question arises, how can you tell if it's a piece written out for two harpsichords? How would you know that it was originally written for something else? And uh, it's a bit of a complex story. But some of the essential features are if you look at the parts for the two solo harpsichords, they're quite melodic. Uh, They don't really rely on having the the full use of the keyboard, you know, to the two hands. Um, Basically, they're melodic. Uh, lines, which suggests that they could have been for a a single line instrument like the violin. And some early scholars looking at this piece thought it did look like violin music and so perhaps it was for two violins, a bit like the famous um, D minor concerto for for two violins. But then looking more closely, they said the second violin, the second uh, harpsichord part uh, is a bit more lyrical it doesn't use the kinds of figuration that we expect to see on the violin so each instrument has its own typical kinds of melodic lines that are comfortable to play so for example on string instruments you can easily do uh, wide leaps and arpeggiation and so forth because you can cross over the different strings and easily jump from a high note to a low no, from a high note to a low one and back and so forth whereas that's much harder to do on a wind instrument which prefers to to kind of sing more lyrical melodies and And so what has come down to us as the second harpsichord part actually looks more like a wind instrument part. And then we can look at the range of the part. What instrument would that fit on if you played it uh, on a wind instrument? And indeed, it does look like it would fit nicely on the oboe. Uh, And the way the piece is composed, which has imitation between the two uh, solo instruments, actually works very nicely with violin and oboe, because you can really hear the two voices, um, interp- uh, the, the kind of interplay between them, I guess, because the instruments sound different. It's really easy to, to pick up the, uh, the kind of interplay, the sort of dialogue that's going on between the so- two solo instruments.
0: Yes, and to to echo what you were saying there, there really is an idiomatic way of writing for particular instruments, and the red flag, when you look at the the version for two harpsichords, is that... Bach didn't usually write for harpsichord in that manner in other works. You know, he, he certainly would have used the, utilized the keyboard in a more complete way if the original had have, you know, been written for the harpsichord, if the, the original composition had been planned for that instrumentation. Hence the the question, okay, well, what, you know, and what, what instrument could this be have been for? What's the range? You know, what can we see here? And, um, and uh, honestly, the, as you said, the, the interplay between the violin and oboe, even if uh, f- thousands of years from now we find that it was actually originally written for two harpsichords rather than this invented violin-oboe idea, I think it, it, it works very, very well.
1: Yeah, it certainly does, and uh, yeah, I I must say I find it quite convincing that that um, it it did come originally in at least something very close to this form. Uh, the reconstruction, of course, does involve rewriting the piece to some extent to make it you know, to, to adapt it for those instruments. But in fact, uh, when you do, it, it works really well and it sounds like, it does sound like a piece that was written for those instruments, I think.
0: Now, let's have a listen to the Netherlands Bark Society and incoming soloists, shunsuke Sato and Ember Black, um, both of whom will be performing, of course, for Brandenburg concertgoers in the Barks. <laughs> There's almost no good place to stop this music, is there?
1: <laughs> That's right, yeah. And, um, that's one of the features of, of Bach's composition as well, that he tends to spin out the phrases so that um, one line leads on to the next one. And he doesn't give us many places where it all kind of comes to a halt and you can conveniently stop. And it's one of the ways that he leads us through the music. He kind of guides the ear uh, to, uh, from one section to the next um, into these substantial uh, long movements which uh, keep us interested all the time.
0: Now, talking about harpsichords then, obviously we've, we've mentioned this was a reconstructed uh, concerto based on a, a version that has come down to us from, with two harpsichords as the solo instruments. Harpsichords and keyboard instruments were a a prominent feature of members of the the Bach family and and their uh, musical education. Why is that? Uh, Was that typical of of other musical families too and and other musicians or was was it uh, something that was more particular for for the Bach family?
1: Keyboard playing was fundamental to the education of musicians uh, because uh, it was both practical in that you could use a, any keyboard instrument to accompany other instruments to play the continuo part, the bass line, and the, the harmonies that would accompany a singer or a, a solo instrument, but also because uh, because the a keyboard instrument can kind of accompany itself. It can provide all of the harmony, and it's also a very good vehicle for playing counterpoint on with independent lines because you can play different parts with each hand and and so forth. Um, It was a kind of fundamental tool of trade, in a way, for all musicians. And so even musicians who specialised on another instrument or singers were expected also to be able to play uh, keyboard instruments to a pretty good standard. So singers, for example, are expected to be able to accompany themselves if they were presented to uh, the king and the king said, well, okay, sing me a song, um, you didn't necessarily have an accompanist with you. You had to be able to sit down at the harpsichord and play to accompany yourself. Um, So all of those reasons made keyboard instruments really fundamental to what musicians did. Um, In the Bach family, of course, uh, Sebastian Bach famous as an organist, uh, and that was the, the kind of Uh, Probably thought of at the time as the king of instruments, and as it's sometimes been called since. Um, And that's because the organ is so substantial, so complex, particularly the big church organs that were used in Germany during this period uh, had uh, multiple manuals. So you had for the hands, um, sometimes two, three, four keyboards stacked on top of each other, which allowed you to access different parts of the instrument, different stops, which would produce different kinds of sounds and also a pedal board, uh, which um, in which you can also play melodies. Uh, And so you've got two hands and two feet occupied um, playing uh, separate parts um, on the, the organ, which can therefore produce this very loud and also very complex sound. Um, So that was the kind of defining sound of church music, of course, throughout the period from the, particularly the 17th and 18th centuries, but above all in German uh, organ music of the 18th century, we get this uh, wonderful kind of golden age of music epitomized by Sebastian Bach's organ music. But um, you can only play that kind of instrument when you have access to one and you've got to pay a man to stand out the back and actually pump the bellows. Uh, So it only makes a noise, you know, when there's air being pumped through it and you need somebody physically out there pumping the giant bellows by uh, usually with their feet uh, to make it work. So it's not something you can just, you know, pop in for a few minutes and have a practice. Uh, You need other keyboard instruments as well and, and other instruments are more suitable for other circumstances, so where you have the big church organ for accompanying the, the entire congregation of a thousand people singing a hymn, uh, you also need to be able to play music just for a small group in in a private room, um, and uh, so there. Your harpsichord is the, the fundamental instrument also for, just for practicing and accompanying and, um, uh, and for, for private entertainment um, and, and also as a, a key uh, continuo instrument, just as we see it so often in the orchestra. Uh, Paul Dyer will, will play the harpsichord as a member of the continuo group, which provides the harmonic foundation for almost all of the music of the 17th and 18th centuries.
0: And in talking about pumping the, the bellows, I don't know if there is a, a, an account of this, but I, I, I like to imagine uh, Bach uh, making use of his many children and, uh, and would, probably would have had free labor to, <laughs> because they would have been coming along to Mass anyway uh, to, to, if he needed practice. Uh, although he was, uh, you know, I'm sure there was no shortage of people to pump the bellows for, for Johann Sebastian. <laughs>
1: Well, yes, in in Leipzig, I guess he had a whole school full of kids whose whose job was to uh, to sing in the choir, to play in the orchestra, to copy out the the music. And uh, the ones who didn't have the aptitude for music, well, they probably got to <laughs> to stand out the, the back. Well, no, but uh, and, and there may well have been a, you know, somebody whose uh, job it was simply, to do that on a Sunday and who was, you know, paid some small fee to to be part of the the great enterprise of of music making in the church. Mm -hmm. Um, But uh, so the organ and the harpsichord were were two fundamental keyboard instruments. But there was another important one, which is also one of um, Sebastian Bach's and also um, uh, Carl Philipp Emanuel Bach's favorite instrument, which was the clavichord. And uh, this was the quintessential indoor private music instrument because it's very quiet, quieter even than a harpsichord. Um, And so it's not really an instrument that you can play in a public concert, uh, unless we do it today with amplification. Um, It's really an instrument for almost for playing to yourself or to uh, just really a small group of people uh, seated around the instrument. But it has the great advantage that it's extremely expressive. Although it's quiet, it can do a range of dynamics which are much harder to do on the harpsichord. Um, and you can do this because the mechanism of the clavichord, a little bit like the piano, strikes the string um, rather than to, than plucking it so that uh, you have some control over how hard you hit the string with the, the metal tangent. And that can make it play Softer and louder. Um, and you can even do a kind of vibrato on the clavichord uh, because when you press down the key, it raises uh, a metal bar uh, called the tangent, which strikes the string. But it's, and instead of bouncing off the string the way a piano hammer does and leaving it to ring, the tangent stays pressed against the string. And so uh, by doing that, you can kind of wiggle your finger on the key and uh, it makes this it pushes against the string and makes the whole string wobble a little bit, uh, kind of almost the way uh, electric guitarists do when they kind of pull on the string to, to create a kind of vibrato or a sort of wow effect. Mm-hmm. And so these were the, the little things which are very subtle, but which allowed um, musicians to, to explore the kind of expressive capabilities of the keyboard in a way in a a different way, I guess we would say from what's possible on either the harpsichord or the organ.
0: Yes, I'm very glad you preemptively talked about the clavichord there, Alan, because there's a, a fabulous anecdote, and it's, it's actually an, a fascinating question to think about. With so many children all being uh, educated in music at varying levels, uh, but in the same sort of room at the same time, however, would Johann Sebastian been able to manage that with, with his children? I mean, so many of them were studying keyboard at the same time. Um, if you had all those harpsichords in one room, it which is, which is terrible to listen to and, you know, <laughs> impossible to teach, that's for sure. But the clavichord came in as one of the solutions to that particular that particular problem, didn't it?
1: Well, maybe. that That's always possible. I, I don't think we know enough about the details of the, you know, the Bach family uh, domestic life to be sure exactly how that all worked out. Um, but what we do know is about the training of musicians at the famous uh, ospedali in Venice and the Conservatori in Naples, which were the, the main institutions for training of boys as professional musicians in the 17th and 18th centuries and we have a couple of wonderful accounts of visitors who went to these music schools as effectively what they were in Naples and reported on how the kids were all practicing their instruments and they didn't have set aside nice individual studios the way we have in music schools today instead they were all in their dormitories (laughs) and so um, the uh, the ones with really loud instruments like the trumpets had to go out in the stairwell to practise. Uh, the uh, castrato singers who were considered to be of delicate health had their own floor above. And so they could practise in their own room, but still all together in the same room. And all the other kids were just in their dormitory um, with their violins and oboes and harpsichords. Um, some kids sitting on the end of their bed as their seat with a, a harpsichord in front of them, all playing at the same time, doing their practice, playing different pieces of music or exercises or whatever it was. Complete cacophony. Absolutely <laughs> a horrible noise. Um, so, how did they do it? Uh, I guess what it Uh, And it must have trained them to be kind of resilient, I suppose, but also to be good listeners, because you would have to really shut out everything else and just focus on exactly what you were doing and listen really carefully to the sound that you were making yourself. Um, And uh, so they somehow survived that system and so probably the Bach children and the other the kids at you know the uh, St Thomas's school in Leipzig where Bach was teaching uh, they probably had to put up with a certain amount of that kind of thing as well Um, but uh, you just you know made do with what uh, with what the circumstances were and uh, the more advanced they became I suppose the more opportunities there probably was to say well mm. okay Friedemann you're the oldest and you're the most advanced you can have this, the uh, the harpsichord room today and the others can sit out here and you know practice the violin uh, in the, the lounge room or something.
0: Yes and Wilhelm Friedemann that you've just mentioned obviously being the eldest he did benefit probably from the greatest amount of education, musical education that is from his um, and attention from his father and uh, what a wonderful composer uh, he was, although, you know, it certainly did not um, ha- share the same uh, success in his career as his, some, of his, some of his siblings. Now, we're going to hear an interesting combination of two things, and going back to the idea of excerpts, we're going to hear uh, on the program a, um, a, 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 an excerpt from a Fantasia in A minor for solo harpsichord joined to a symphony in A major that only survives as a fragment, in fact.
1: Yeah, that's right. And so these are two pieces which are um, in their originals quite unrelated. Uh, They were written probably 30, 35 years apart. Um, But uh, they fortuitously are in the same key and so they fit kind of neatly together. And so the harpsichord piece can be used as a sort of introduction to the uh, the orchestral uh, uh, Sinfonia. Um, the harpsichord piece is quite improvisatory. It's a really interesting, you know, advanced kind of piece in a way. And it is it's composed in the 1770s. So we're talking about um, the, the era of Haydn and Mozart virtually by then. Um, and uh, whereas the orchestral piece is written in the 1730s, so it's contemporary with uh, many of the, the famous works of his father, Sebastian Bach. Um, But uh, put together, they actually make a really interesting and and nice combination.
0: Why don't I put on the start of that Fantasia in A minor, here performed by harpsichordist Julia Brown um, on her album, Bach Keyboard Works, released in 2008. Now I'll leave that going in the background, Alan. Um, we can hear a few things in this recording, uh, notably the release of the instrument, the the release of the the, the keys that you, you, is distinctive to the sound of the harpsichord, isn't it?
1: Yeah, it is, um, because the harpsichord mechanism works by plucking the string. The uh, When you press the key, it kind of reaches up and, and uh, plucks on the string almost like a guitar, uh, and uh, so the string will keep sounding until it's damped, and, and then the, the when you release the key, the sound will stop, but um, but it dies away during the course of, of the time that it's sounding as well, so that it, it does have a very particular kind of um, Uh, shape to each individual note as it's kind of uh, has quite a strong attack when the note is plucked and then the the note kind of dies away. And so to create that um, thick texture, harpsichord music tends to have quite a lot of notes. You don't get a lot of uh, just sustained notes or or rests because the sound just disappears. So we tend to have a lot of those sort of patterns of rising and falling arpeggios and and so on which kind of fill in the space and build the harmony over uh, an extended phrase uh, structure. Uh, A piece like this is actually a bit reminiscent of uh, some of the kind of out there keyboard music of his younger brother Carl Philipp Emanuel Bach, who had been writing kind of experimental keyboard music over the past couple of decades. And so it's really interesting to hear how Friedemann Bach is also experimenting in that kind of way. And at what point, I mean, obviously,
0: Wilhelm Friedemann, Carl Philipp, they, they segue through the Gallant into towards the classical period. At what point did this sort of music actually sort of start disappearing and, and the use of the harpsichord um, uh, dwindling?
1: Well, about the kind of time that this piece was written in the 1770s, we're starting to get the emergence of the piano as a a viable alternative, I guess. Um, Pianos had been around in a very early form since the 1730s, but they didn't really catch on uh, as a kind of viable alternative to the uh, harpsichord and the clavichord uh, and start to become really popular until the 1760s, 70s and especially the 80s when Mozart um, is writing uh, some of his, um, you know, keyboard concertos and and so forth, uh, which really show off what the fortepiano can do. Um, so it's just in this period where that transition is happening. And there's a certain amount of music that was written for either harpsichord or photopiano, uh, and composers sometimes specify that on the score, though. Maybe that was in order to sell more copies, because if you could play it on either instrument, then it would, uh, of course be available to more players. But we start to see just around this time, uh, more and more distinctively, uh, uh, pianistic kind of music, which doesn't work so well on the harpsichord. Um, and in part of the part of the reason for that is because the piano sustains better than the harpsichord does. Uh, and so you can play more kind of lyrical melodies which don't work so well on the harpsichord um, in the same way. And so it, it provides for different kinds of textures uh, and also the contrasts of loud and soft that you can do on um, the fortepiano, which uh, you can't do in the same way on the harpsichord.
0: Now, w- w- one last thing I'd like for us to talk about today is, of course, the the magnificent Bach orchestral suite that's uh, going to feature as the last item on the on the program, uh, the orchestral suite number one in C major. Um, we spoke a little bit about overtures before. Perhaps, Ellen, you'd like to tell us about uh, this piece and, and the structure, because there are so many movements. It's it's a little bit complicated with overture, courante, uh, gavotte, forlan, menuette, bourree, passe I mean, it's all going on, and there's ones and twos and all these this sort of thing. Perhaps you could uh, enlighten us a little bit about this particular orchestral suite and what we should expect to hear.
1: Yeah, Uh, this is one of um, four orchestral suites that uh, Bach wrote uh, in uh, Leipzig around 1725 to 1730. Uh, We don't know specifically for what occasion this piece was written, but uh, it was the kind of thing that was done when there was a special celebration for a visit of an important visitor such as uh, a local nobleman or something like that. Um, And uh, so it's a very festive sounding piece. Um, The overture, the opening movement is by far the the largest and uh, longest and most kind of serious and substantial movement, I guess we could say. And it's in that French overture form that we were talking about before. So it has the opening with the the dotted rhythms and so forth, and then the fugal second section. And then it's followed by a series of dance movements with the kind that you you listed just a moment ago. Um, All of them, it's interesting to note, are French forms. So this is... um, a, a kind of uh, overtly um, uh, French kind of piece. It, it says up in lights, you know, this is French music, except that it's, of course, not quite like what actual French composers wrote. It's using French forms, but adapting them to the style of uh, of central German composers like uh, J.S. Bach. Um, each of the different dance forms was not intended for actually dancing to, they're just using the forms uh, of those kinds of dances. Uh, but what it does is to provide contrast because particular dances would be faster or slower uh, and they use distinctive rhythms. So, for example, the uh, minuet is in a triple time, uh, it's leading in the direction of what later becomes the waltz. So, it's a, a moderately quick uh, triple time bum, 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 bum. Ba, dum, bum, bum, that kind of rhythm. Whereas the gavotte has a very distinctive. Uh, it's in normally duple time, so four-four, but it has a very distinctive pickup of two beats. Right. Bum, bum, bah, bum, bum, ba, dum, bum, ba, dum, bum, bum, ba, dee, etc., <laughs> and uh, and so on for each of the other kinds of dance has its own distinctive kind of rhythm patterns, its own tempo, uh, and particular kinds of melodic shapes that that go with that kind of dance. And originally, those uh, came from the court dances that were done at the French court, uh, and. Uh, And so they were designed around the kinds of steps that you actually did in the dance Uh, as they became used more for uh, simply orchestral pieces to listen to like this and not for actually dancing to, then uh, they could be adapted to some extent. And so some of those specific elements that belong to the uh, choreography of the dance could be um, allowed to, to to, well, be kind of elided a bit, I suppose we could say. So uh, by the time we get up to the minuets that we get typically in in Haydn's and Mozart's symphonies, they are absolutely not danceable, many of them, because they're playing around with it and and, uh, deliberately messing with the underlying pattern that we, uh, that we are expecting to hear in order to create surprise and delight and so on. And so we get a little bit of that kind of thing also in Bach, where he's um, not sticking entirely to the way you would compose the piece if it was actually to be danced to, but uh, it provides a, a kind of formula which allows you to provide light and shade, contrast and interest throughout the piece.
0: Yes, a little bit of flexibility. You don't have to be a, a musically rigid person because musically rigid is probably musically frigid. You know, you, you, you will end up, yeah. you'll end up creating something that doesn't have the intended emotional effect.
1: Yeah, that's right. And uh, in particular, you don't have to be choreographically rigid, I suppose we could say, because this is not actually dance music; it's just using those dance forms.
0: So let's have a listen to the Australian Brandenburg Orchestra. Um, now, this this uh, recording goes back to two thousand. Alan, as, as was part of the Baroque Passions program, it was the uh, concert opener. So so interesting that uh, that for the Barks, this is going to be the concert closer. Um, the orchestral suite number one performed in two thousand by Paul Dyer and the Australian Brandenburg Orchestra, recorded live by ABC Classic at the City Recital Hall. There's something about this piece, Alan. I mean, I I, I struggle to bring it down, that's for sure.
1: Yeah, it's wonderful stuff, isn't it? And there's a reason why these pieces are absolute staples of the repertoire and why we keep coming back to them and uh, love to to hear them in live performance too because uh, just seeing the orchestra with uh, all of those um, instruments and the the kind of contrasts and the, the... um, the, the, kind of, the live sound of the period instruments playing this kind of festive music is something really distinctive and, and very exciting to hear in, in live performance.
0: Now, obviously, we, we are, are very lucky to be treated to uh, the guest director and, and soloist Shunsuke Sato through most of this program, and it'll be fascinating to hear his approach to this particular orchestral suite as much as the, the rest of the, the program. Uh, one last question I have for you, uh, though, Alan, is what are you most looking forward to in this series?
1: Well... I'm, I'm really looking forward to hearing these you know famous pieces like the uh, orchestral suite number one and the concerto for the, for violin and oboe. But above all, I'm looking forward to hearing the pieces we don't know. And uh, one of those is the, which we haven't talked about so far today, but is the battle piece by Kyriakos Wilke. Now, he's an interesting one because his surname is not Bach, of course. So why is he on the program? Well, he is possibly we don't know for sure, but he might have been an ancestor, maybe the, the great grandfather of Bach's second wife, Anna Magdalena Wilke uh, And it's um, one of those pieces which uh, which is typical of some mid 17th century music, where they set out to imitate uh, the sounds of real life. And in this case of a battle, it was kind of a fashionable thing for a period there to to do this kind of uh, imitation of uh, particularly of battle sounds in music and so it's a little bit like what in the 19th century would be a Tchaikovsky's 1812 overture with the cannons going off and all of that stuff uh he's trying to create in in music um that kind of lively scene of uh of a battle going on and so I'm really looking forward to hearing that in life performance too
0: yes as am I and the um it's a shame we don't have a a, a fantastic recording um of that uh but uh, but the, 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 it, it seems to be his only surviving piece um, that, that, that I was able to come across
1: anyway. Yeah, as far as I know, we, we don't uh, know any other music by him. But it's lucky that we do have this one because it's such fun. It's uh, reminiscent, there's a, a famous one which listeners may know by um, Heinrich Bieber. Uh, a generation or so later, uh, which also recreates in kind of lively and and sometimes comical uh, form uh, some of the elements of the the soldiers sitting around waiting for the battle and singing songs, and then you get in there, and there are the cannons going off and and all of that stuff so um, This is also a reminder, I suppose, that there is so much music which has been lost from this period. And so we are really lucky just to have some uh, occasional pieces like this. And also that there is so much music which uh, has not yet been recorded um, from this period or not in, you know, in good recordings that are easy to get at least. Uh, And so it is wonderful to be able to go into the concert hall and hear something which has uh, really been and sometimes never been heard uh, since it was first composed three or 400 years ago. And this is one of those occasions where it will be great to go and hear something really unfamiliar and uh, and lively and exciting.
0: Another thing that I, I personally am looking forward to is, is hearing Anthony Abu Hamad, actually, as the soloist on the harpsichord, because, of course, this uh, is, going to be, um, is going to be a series without Paul Dyer, fe- featuring uh, Shunsuke Sato as guest director, and, uh, and Anthony has uh, the, the, the opportunity to perform that Fantasia that we heard a, a bit of uh, just earlier.
1: Yes, and I'm really looking for, actually, I, that's probably the thing I'm most looking forward to really, I should, I guess, <laughs> because uh, I had the great pleasure of supervising Anthony's PhD, uh, which was on uh, the training manuals that were used in Salzburg during the 17th and 18th centuries to teach students how to play the keyboard in the way that we were talking about before. Um, and uh, he's now gone on to be a, a valued colleague at the conservatorium and uh, a wonderful harpsichordist and and music director himself, so it will be great to see him. I think for the first time with the Brandenburg Orchestra as well, and That's great to right. see his his career developing in that way.
0: Well, thank you again for your time, Alan. It has been a pleasure discussing the the Barks and the family dynasty that has uh, basically rewritten music history almost single handedly. Uh, it's incredible to think about the the way that they've influenced um, Western music.
1: Certainly is, yeah. And it's hard to think of any figure more, uh, any individual who was more influential than Sebastian Bach, but uh, great in a program like this to put him in the context of this whole. Um, family of, uh, uh, of musicians um, who, who stayed in the trade, we could say, throughout this whole period and, uh, and particularly his, uh, his sons as well, who carried it on and developed the style of music in some quite different directions into the latter part of the 18th century. So uh, yeah, wonderful to have the chance to talk about all this stuff and even more wonderful to be able to come to the concert and hear it.
0: If you've enjoyed this podcast today, consider making a donation in support of the Brandenburg by visiting our website, www.brandenburg.com.au. Thank you for this very important role you play as part of the Brandenburg family. And thank you for joining us. This has been Tales of Baroque with Dr. Alan Maddox, Senior Lecturer in Musicology of the University of Sydney Conservatorium of Music and your host, Hugh Ronzani from the Australian Brandenburg Orchestra.